Rabbi Samuel Chill, of blessed memory, used to say, the Jewish people are not superstitious, Kenahora. <laughs> and I personally, recently, was an eyewitness to the birth, the thriving, and the demise of a superstition, Kinahora. It happened in the Gan Chapel, in the evening minion, and it concerns seating arrangements. So every night forever, Grant Finkel sits in his accustomed seat in the left section of the Gan Chapel as you face the bima in the second row. Meanwhile, every night, for as long as forever, Lisa Hills sits in the right section of the bima <laughs> in the first row in her accustomed seat. One fine night, I don't know why, only God knows. Grant Finkel did not sit in his usual seat in the second row over there. He sat right next to Lisa Hills in the front row over here. And I'll tell you what happened as a direct consequence of that move. <laughs> what happened as a direct consequence of that move was that the Celtics won. <laughs> the Celtics had been playing very inconsistently. They lost playoff games at home. And then Grant Finkel sat next to Lisa Hills, and they won. Obviously because of Grant. Well, the next night, when people started walking in for Minion at 728, we said to Grant, Grant, you have to sit next to Lisa Hills. <laughs> and he did. The next night, the Celtics were playing again. And in come Lisa and Grant, and in comes Mad Hills, Lisa's husband. And Matt is going to sit next to his wife. And we said to Matt, Matt, scram, scram. You cannot sit next to your wife. Sit over there. The Celtics are playing tonight. Now, Matt is a Celtics fan. And he was actually wearing a Celtics t-shirt. So he was happy to comply. And Grant sat next to Lisa. And the Celtics won. We had the secret power, and then came the first three games of the Miami series, and then we didn't have the secret power, and the superstitious fever has now passed. And now Grant is sitting in his accustomed seat. Lisa is sitting in her accustomed seat. Matt Hills is sitting next to his beloved wife, and all is good in the Gantt Chapel. And if the Celtics are going to win tonight, it has to be Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on the court and not Grant and Lisa in the Gan Chapel. But now here's my question. Why was I a rational person? Why were others, rational people, buying into this superstition that in retrospect, especially after the Miami series, seems not so rational. And I think superstitions respond to a human problem, which is when we care a lot 
and we control a little. Or we care a lot and we control nothing. We care for our home team. We want our home team to win, and actually we control nothing. So a superstition gives us the illusion of a modicum of, a modicum of control where, in fact, none exists. Now, alas, this challenge, this human challenge, we care so much, but we control nothing. Doesn't only apply to sports games and superstitions. It applies to life and death. We're about to recite Yisker for our beloved departed loved ones. And the fact of the matter is, we could not control so much about them. We could not control when they died. We could not control how they died. Now, our tradition has this tradition of a neshika, of a kiss. And the tradition is that Moses dies at the age of 120 when God gives him a kiss, al piyadonoi. And Moses' cognitive skills are perfect and intact. And his physical skills are perfect and intact. One of the last lines in the whole Torah is that his vision was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. He's lived 120 full years, no diminution of his humanity. He just had lived a full life, and God takes him, no pain, no regret, a neshikah. Well, Moses got a neshikah. Good for him. He deserved it. Most of us, we don't get a neshikah. And most of the people that we love who are remembering this morning, most of them did not get a neshikah. For most of the people that we remember this morning, there was mess when they left this world. There was pain when they left this world, and there was unfinished business when they left this world. Some of the people we remember this morning, they died too young. They died too soon. They died too early. They died with decades that they never got to live. And there is no balm in Gilead for that pain. No nashika, no control, just hard, raw loss. And for others of us, the people we love and remember this morning, their end was just schlepped out. It was just too long. It was prolonged. It was protracted. It was too painful. It was marked by an diminishment. Their mind didn't think the way it used to think. Their body did not work the way it used to work. The one thing they never wanted was to become dependent. And they became dependent. And the one thing they never wanted was to become a burden, and now it takes 24-7 care to keep them going. Dignity. Where's my dignity? No nashika, no control. 
And if you've been in that chapter, you know it can go on for weeks and it can go on for months and it can go on for years, no nashiko. So we don't control when our loved ones die and we don't control how our loved ones die. We also don't control, and they did not control, important factors that shaped how they actually lived their lives. When I meet with families, they'll often talk about these big forces that shaped how their loved ones lived their lives. And there were these big forces that shaped and they had no control. And very often, the word that comes up in this conversation, and it happens a lot, is the word scarred. Here's a couple of contexts where I hear this all the time. My father, my mother, was scarred by the Depression. And then they'll tell a story. I've heard some version of this story so many times, I cannot count it. I've heard so many versions of this story. My father was 10 years old, and he lost a dime. He misplaced a dime. And he went to his parents, and he said, Mama, Papa, I misplaced a dime, and I can't find it, and I looked for it, and I retraced my steps, and I can't find it. And they said, a dime, a dime? You lost a dime? They went bananas. The depression scarred my father. Here's another story that I hear all the time. My mother lost her mother when she was only seven years old. My father lost his mother when he was only seven years old. He didn't have his mother, and he was scarred and shaped by not having a mother. And so we don't control how our loved ones die. We don't control when our loved ones die, and we don't control important factors that shape how they live. But there is one crucial thing that we do control, and Lord, it matters. We do control one thing that is essential, and that is how we remember them. That we control. And that control clicks in immediately. First of all, we control how often we remember our beloved departed loved ones. You might think if somebody says to some truth system, hey, I just lost my mother, just lost my father, just lost my brother, sister, husband, wife, God forbid I just lost my son or daughter, how, how long am I supposed to mourn? You might think that some truth systems would say, geez, Louise, how long? That's an inchoate problem with an inchoate solution. That's personal. Consult your own heart. Not Judaism. Judaism answers the question, how long? With mathematics. The mathematics of mourning. How long should I mourn for my beloved departed? Well, if it's a parent, you say Kaddish for 11 months and one day. And if it's a brother or sister, or husband or wife, or God forbid a son or daughter, you say Kaddish for 30 days. And that's the first year. What about after that? How often am I supposed to mourn my beloved departed after year one? Well, and the answer is very clear, five, five. Don't mourn four. Four is not enough. 
Don't mourn six. Six is too much. The right answer is five. You mourn five. You say Kaddish at Yisker four times a year. On Yom Kippur, on Sukkot, on Pesach, and Shavuos, that's four. Add Yortzite, that's five. Say Kaddish five times for your loved one throughout the years. But it's not just that we have control over how often we remember our loved ones. Here's what's really so important. Don't miss this. We have control over how we remember them. We have total control over how we remember them in a few minutes. First of all, we have control over how we remember them if there is, shall we say, complexity. If they were complex, if our relationship was complex, if there's edge, we have the control that comes from working towards forgiving them, the imperfections of their humanity. As you know, Rabbi Harold Kushner passed away a few weeks ago, and it was a national news story. There was press and all the papers. And all the papers told some version of the following story. I just love this story. Been thinking about it, wanted to share it with you on Yisker. A reporter says to Rabbi Kushner, hey, Rabbi Kushner, you teach in your book that God is not all-powerful. God is not all-powerful, is that right? And Rabbi Kushner says, yes, I teach God is not all-powerful. And then the reporter says, well, wait a minute, Rabbi Kushner, you're Jewish, aren't you? And he says, I am Jewish. So you're a rabbi and a theologian in a Jewish context. And Rabbi Kushner says, yes. And the reporter says, well, doesn't Judaism teach that God is all-powerful? So if Judaism teaches that God is all-powerful and you're an interpreter of Judaism, how then do you teach that God is not all-powerful? So I got to say, that's an excellent question from the reporter. I mean, that question is very, very excellent. And if you think about the Amidah, we say the Amidah three times a day on Shabbos and Yontif, we say it four times a day. We say God is Ha'el, Hagadol, Hagibor, Fahanora. That's just, that's just mantra stuff. God is great and powerful and mighty. How then does Rabbi Kushner, operating out of that framework, possibly teach that God is not all-powerful? Excellent question from the reporter. Thing is, Rabbi Kushner's answer was even better. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to embody Rabbi Kushner's answer. Rabbi Kushner said to the reporter, God and I have reached an accommodation. <laughs> I forgive God for God's limitations, and I pray that God forgives me for mine. If you want to live, you have to forgive people for being imperfect. You have to forgive life itself for being imperfect. You have to forgive God for being imperfect. You have to forgive your own self for being imperfect. One thing we can do today that gives us control, we can forgive the people we love for being imperfect. 
As you know, when the carousel shifts, and it's our children and grandchildren remembering us, Lord only knows we have our imperfections, and we will want them to forgive us ours. But here's the second piece of control that we have. Right now, we can ask ourselves, what is good and beautiful and powerful and admirable about our loved ones? And then we have the power that comes from trying to do our level best to become their living legacy. Were our loved ones gritty and resilient and determined? What would it look like if we tried to become gritty and resilient and determined? Were our loved ones, despite the manifold challenges of life, still hopeful and optimistic? What would it look like if we were to become more hopeful and optimistic? Were our loved ones faithful and true? Are we? Were our loved ones ever curious learners? And if so, what new area of learning are we doing? What are we embarking on to honor their curiosity? And were our loved ones serious Jews who took this faith tradition seriously? And if so, how can we deepen our own Jewish learning and practice as a testimony to their lives? And so it turns out there is so much we do not control. We don't control how they died. We don't control when they died. We don't control how they lived. But we do control how we remember them. We do control whether we forgive them. We do control what we admire about them. We do control whether we become their living legacy. When it comes to game six tonight, we care so much and we control nothing. But when it comes to Yisker this morning, we care so much and we control so much. Please rise. Thank you.